We're in the book of 1 Samuel. It may not seem like that in a minute here, but I trust you we are and we will be. What I like about David is that he is a real individual and that because of the Psalms that we have, many of them written by him, our songs and in a poetic form of Hebrew, which doesn't really translate all that well to what we understand or are used to as poetry and rhyming and iambic pentameter and all those good things that we associate with poetry and all. But the things that, that uh, the Psalms have in common with songs that we know and poetry even that we know is that it's a real ready avenue and by design is an outpouring of what's going on inside the individual. And in this case, David, when he writes his Psalms, he's very candid about who he is and about the realities of his struggles in life. And Many of David's psalms reflect the tension of that struggle with yet the faith that he has in his Lord and the promised Messiah and all that that means in serving under Jehovah God. Because when you see his frustrations, you also, though, see at the same time, or maybe not at the same time, but frequently in the psalms, he'll be pouring out his heart as in Psalm 6-3 when he says, My soul is greatly dismayed, but you, O Lord, how long? And in Psalm 13 again, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Do you ever feel like that? Come on. I should say, how often do you not feel like that? So David just puts it all out there, and it's good to see who he is. Well, in First Samuel, Saul is continuing his pursuit of David with the intent of getting rid of his competition. The thing about our view of the historical narratives in the scriptures is that we don't see them in the way that the people who were experiencing see them. We understand them much more fully than David and Saul in this case, as they were going through the situations that we are reading about. What we know about the historical narratives we've been looking at in 1 Samuel is, in a sense, much more than what Saul and David knew, as I said, when they were going through it. Like what? Well, for one thing, that David is unequivocally God's man. We know that. David knew it at at a level, but the realities of his life wasn't really indicating that. We'll see more of that in a minute. God had already personally established him as king, even though we don't see that playing out yet, at least certainly not in the full functioning of what it means to be king over God's people. To we who are stuck living in the moment, in our day, you know, moment by moment, it's a big deal to have such a narrow view of the big picture. But in God's universe, all the things that Saul didn't know, and all the things that David didn't know, and all the things that we don't know in our time right now, the things that keep us up at night, to God, they're just details, And such things make David's universe, and they make our universe, confusing and tentative and hard and unnerving. Pass the Tums, please. David has many day-to-day doubts that 
The time will come when God's full intention for David's rule over God's people will be fulfilled in totality, albeit in God's perfect timing. But God knows the beginning from the end. And so again, to him, life's consternations are mere details. To us, however, they can be life-diminishing and even life-shortening. I don't think that most Americans understand how monumental yesterday was for the future of America. So what I want you to do now, though, is I want you to imagine for a moment if 90 days ago, because that's when this whole thing started with the confirmation of the next justice of the Supreme Court. Go back, if you can, thinking about 90 days ago, and what if, though, 90 days ago, we already knew the details and we knew the final outcome of what we have just been through as a nation? We have just been through a deplorable mess in our nation with the utterly contrived character assassination of a man for the Supreme Court. This was never, it was never about right or about justice. And if I left it there, that would be my opinion and an argument by assertion, and those are not worth much. However, sometimes I believe in the sovereignty of God. He lays these little nuggets, these little treats on those who are listening. I am quoting Senator Cory Booker, admitted in a press conference on Tuesday. That was just four days ago. He admitted in a press conference on Tuesday that his belief that Brett Kavanaugh should not be confirmed to the Supreme Court has nothing to do with whether he is innocent or guilty. Are you hearing me? Did you hear that? This is coming from one of the most blusterous, boisterous accusers, if you will. He says it has nothing to do with whether he's innocent or guilty. The very fact that his name has been sullied by uncorroborated allegations. What? He, he just admitted they're uncorroborated. Meaning they're worthless. Did he know he was admitting that? I don't think he did. And the judge pushed back against the politically motivated handling of the allegations by Democrat senators. This is coming from the Democrat Senator Booker. And he says they ultimately disqualify Kavanaugh from a lifetime appointment to the sacred institution simply because his name has been smeared by uncorroborated allegations, by politically motivated. And you say to yourself, what in heaven's name is going on here? And I do not over-spiritualize. When in my mind I go through the things of Scripture, especially as we're getting toward the end of the end, about the delusion that will be sent out over the world, and it will be of an increasing nature in all the spiritual ramifications of that. How different 
my life would have been over the past 90 days had I been able to see what God sees when he sees it. And anybody can say that at any point in time in their life. And King David certainly is seeing it and understanding it. So David is king. We know David is king because God has said so. But the detail and the full working out of all that means for David and God's people has not yet been realized. In other words, it hasn't been experienced yet. So thinking about all this, I have a couple of questions for us. First one. Are we not as Christ followers saved? Are we not as Christ followers saved? <laughs> okay. And by that I mean our salvation has been fully accomplished. It is not in the process of being accomplished, right? The answer is right. And that's because our justification in Christ will never be more righteous and we will never be more saved or our salvation will never be more complete or more certain even if we live another 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. Because it is an accomplished, completed fact that Jesus paid the price for our sins and defeated death once for all. And as the Apostle Paul tells us, it is the power of sin is the power of death. And since Jesus was sinless, therefore death could not hold him in the grave. This is the glory and this is the power of the empty tomb, which we commemorate here at faith pretty much on a monthly basis. Our salvation is fully, totally, completely accomplished. Second question. Are Christ followers experiencing today the fullness of all that our righteousness in Christ has accomplished? What do I mean? Even though we are fully saved... Do Christ followers today, and I'm talking about you, obviously, and me, and Christ followers, not just in our day, but past and future. Do Christ followers live in light of this complete salvation that's totally accomplished? Do we live without temptation? No. Do we never wrestle with sin? (laughs) Do we live free of injustice? Has unfairness been eradicated? Are we immune to the onslaughts of the demonic forces and trials? We're fully saved. But are we above the physical decrepitude that comes with aging? I don't know how many of you were peeking during Brent's prayer, but you would have seen me behind the pulpit here disappearing Because I was stretching out my low back. (laughs) Because, you know, we tend to do things, overdo things. You know, we may do anything. You know, if one pellet bag is good, you can take two. I wish I'd say that's what happened. No, it was a replay of what happened when we were in El Salvador. I did the manly thing of seeing a plug in an outlet. And I walked over and I bent over and I pulled that plug out and went, what just happened? Seriously, and I went onto the floor and I just laid there praying. Fortunately, in El Salvador, you can walk into a pharmacy 
And you can get all kinds of stuff without a prescription. Not controlled substances, but prednisone, which is exactly what I needed. And it revisited me because I overdid it again a couple of days ago. When I did pretty much the same thing, and I bent over with a little spatula with a little taping compound mud on it to get a little thing here, and I went like that and went, what the heck again? Yeah, our bodies are wasting away. (laughs) Paul writes to the Second Corinthians about all that, about these earthly tents we have, and they are just wasting away, but there is a new house made by God for us in heaven, referring to the eternal body that will be perfect. Obviously, none of us are in perfected bodies yet, although I do wonder about Tom Brady. And while we know that Satan and all of his demons have been vanquished, what does Paul write to the Colossians in chapter 2? He says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them through him. But Satan has not yet been cast into the lake of fire with all his demons. And when I ride my bike, I am reminded... By all the dead squirrels and the dead deer and the dead porcupines littering our streets that we have not yet received the new heaven and the new earth. But all of these things are an accomplished reality in God's economy. But we are not experiencing them yet in the fullness of all that our Savior's work completed. But we are nonetheless fully saved totally, completely victorious. Now, some of you still might say, no, I'm not buying it. It's, it's, still, it's not complete. No, it is complete. Let me use this real-life illustration. Back in World War II, when things were escalating toward the end, and there was a rather climactic end, if you're familiar at all with World War II history, victory in Europe was declared in May of 1945. It was called VE Day for Victory in Europe. And for all intents and purposes, and I mean in all the news feeds and the official statements from the militaries and all that, the war was over. But VJ Day, victory in Japan, did not occur for three or four months yet in, in August of 1945. And then the war was, again, over completely, in totality, accomplished. Victory had been totally secured. But not for everybody. A Japanese intelligence officer named Hiru Onoda was assigned to the Philippine island of Lubang. And he was under orders not to surrender under any circumstances. And what we had was an individual who was not going to surrender under any circumstances. So he followed his orders to the letter and was still doing so 29 years after World War II ended. Onoda and three other soldiers with him survived an allied occupation of the island and they hid in the mountains. And for the next three decades, he was engaging in guerrilla activities with local officials immediately after the war's conclusion. And then again in 1952, they started airdropping leaflets because they didn't know how to find this guy or where he was, telling him the war was over. The victory has already been secured. It's time to stop. 
He thought it was just another enemy ruse. And so he ignored it. And so in 1974, after Onoda's three comrades had either surrendered or been killed, and Onoda had been presumed dead, a Japanese college student is backpacking through the Philippines, and he discovers Commander Onoda, who still refused to surrender until his former commanding officer issued the command. Fortunately for him, Major Yoshimi Taniguchi, who was still alive, was currently working as a bookseller, flew to the Philippines and formerly relieved him of his duty. The war was long over, but the effects of victory were not fully realized. Now, when someone is wayward, and by wayward I mean not in step with the creator of the universe, their perspective on everything becomes skewed, if not irrational. They see a different reality because the one who defines real reality is no longer or has never been on the throne of that person's life. And so what happens is, is they muster their own personal truth and their own reality. And with all the vigor of a zealot, they proceed forth on what is in actuality a godless rampage while believing with every fiber of their being that they are right and those who think they are right are wrong. But our source of true truth and our source of real reality comes from the one and the only truth giver. Isaiah says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. But now, listen, we're going to pause there a moment. Even though that, what I've read thus far, is from the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative word of God, that works for us. But in the absence of any explanation for the cause of such an indictment, In other words, without giving us the foundation for such a harsh assessment, it doesn't give us the moral justification from which we can be critical of someone else's values and ideologies, which we happen to, with equal vigor, vigor, label as perverse or simply wrong. I can yell as loud as I want and blockade abortion clinics with righteous indignation in my mind because that is my conviction. But if you've ever experienced anything like that, the pro-aborts can, with equal or greater conviction, scream and yell and assault someone who is pro-life, feeling just as right as I do. So one's passion... And one's vigor or conviction does not determine right and wrong. And one of the grave consequences of abandoning the Lord on high as a national ethic is that right and wrong 
are now determined by power and force. So Isaiah's words, as far as I have read them, are mere sentiment until the pericope finishes. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, and who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised his word, uh, the word of the Holy One of Israel. So there, ah, there it is. It's no longer argument by assertion. It's no longer argument by my personal conviction. It is by argument of the truth of the truth giver who declares what is and what is we are never to make up our own truth no matter how strongly we feel about it we are never to impose that on others we are to take the truth revealed to us by the truth giver and you betcha we are to impose that upon others which is the mandate for every christ follower in the new testament era as it was of the old testament chesedim the faithful ones in the old testament think of all the times when god commissioned his people to go out and they were taking over a land and dispossessing the people in it knocking down their false gods and their idols and their religions and burning the evidences of their false religions and everything else how intolerant can you be yeah and it's paradigmatic it is a pattern We had better be intolerant of the things that the Lord God Almighty is clear as being intolerant on himself. That is what it means to become more Christ-like and to reflect the heart and mind and character of God. So we are in Samuel chapter 23. I know this is old material. Saul said back in 23.7, God has delivered David into my hand. God has delivered David into my hand. (laughs) God has delivered David into my hand. A few verses later, the Ziphites came to Saul and said, we know where your enemy is. And again, Saul said, may you be blessed of the Lord who has delivered David into my hands. But it's interesting that the narrator's perspective on the view of this historical narrative differs widely from Saul's. What I mean by the narrator, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit who sees all, knows all, who dictates what is written down and what is not written down. And Saul sought David every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. Wait, wait, no. no. What did Paul say back in verse 7? God has delivered David into my hand. Seven verses later, the Holy Spirit says, God did not deliver David into his hand. Now remember what I said back in the open. How in David's universe, in his day-to-day life, it's confusing, it's tentative, and it's hard. We see this, as I noted at the beginning, in the Psalms of David. In Psalm 54, he is writing about this 
very situation. And so he lets us into his heart and soul. And we can see how this man after God's own heart is wired together, what he's thinking, what he's believing, and how he responds to those uncertainties and those unfairnesses and injustices. He begins, is not David hiding himself among us? Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. What's David doing? David is expressing his uncertainties and his fears about the current reality to David. But then he continues in his psalm to reassure himself of what he believes to be true about the Lord, despite what he is experiencing and feeling. He says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense, that means pay back, the evil to my foes, destroy them in your faithfulness. And then he makes faith declarations. Willingly, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. The rest of chapter 23 finds Saul stalking David continually as he receives new intel. And Saul still believes that he has David in the bag, and yet again, as Saul is in hot pursuit of David, Saul gets word of new intelligence that the Philistines, alas, are attacking back at Saul's ranch, which meant Saul had to now cut off his hot pursuit for the time and go to fight off the Philistines. Chapter 23 ends and gives us only two verses that go into chapter 24. Two verses that take eight seconds to read. And in those eight seconds, what we are told is that there is a big battle brewing with the Philistines. The battle has taken place. Saul goes back and fights them. We assume he defeats them to some level and extent. People are killed. Property is taken or land is taken and, or retaken or whatever it happens to be. And all of a sudden we're right into 24-1 again where it says, Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. What happened to the battle with the Philistines? It's irrelevant from the one who is superintending what he wants us to know about the narrative. It's only a detail. A detail? It wasn't just a detail to the people, the soldiers of Saul who were fighting and getting killed, or to the Philistines. I know. But in God's economy to mankind, it is merely a detail. He wants us to see that Saul is yet still going after David and pursuing him at En Gedi. Now when Saul returned, chapter 24, from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave. I was going to have uh, put a picture up. I had them loaded and all. I just decided against it for one reason or another. And En Gedi is a, is a very um, uh, stern 
geographical place with rock walls where there are all kinds of caves. I mean, you just see modern day in Getty and there's just, there's, you can see why David went there. It was a very easy place to find coverage and virtually impossible to be found. So Saul goes there. He knows he's somewhere there. And lo and behold, Saul is human. And biology takes over. And the matzah and the gefilte fish from the day before have to go somewhere. And Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself. Yes, even kings have to go to the bathroom. Now, if you could see in Getty and just the sheer amount of caves and everything, the fact that David and his men were hiding in this cave and that cave is where Saul just happens to go to go to the bathroom. That stretches credulity. There is a supernatural force, God in heaven, overseeing the machinations of history. Now, David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. I cannot help every time I read this of trying to picture this whole, I almost said this whole stinking thing. Oh, (laughs) the men of David said to him, behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I'm about to give you your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. You will find your enemy with his pants down. No, literally caught with his pants down. Then David arose and he cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. I'm trying to picture how that worked. How did, I don't know. How do you get that cloak? Maybe, maybe what we don't know is Saul would take off his cloak and leave it somewhere. Well, I don't know. But that's not the way I'm seeing it. But maybe that was, I don't know. This was always fun explaining this to my kids when they were wee little ones. So David arose and he cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. And so he said to his men, far be it from me. Because of the Lord, that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, since he is our Lord's anointed. I, my mind is boggled by David's faith and respect of God's divine holy decree to make Saul king. And David's heart and mind is God installed him and anointed him. And so it is God's responsibility, and he's the only one who has the right and prerogative to take Saul out. I will not be the one. Or this is the first time. This is not going to be the last time something similar happens. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, he left the cave, and he went on his way. Now afterward, David arose and he went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, 
David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you. Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see, my father... We forgot. Saul's his father-in-law. Remember? Indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, no one perceived that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the lord avenge me on you may the lord avenge me on you may the lord avenge me on you but my hand shall not be against you as the proverb of the ancient says out of the wicked comes forth wickedness but my hand shall not be against you and whom has the king of israel come out like, Saul, come on, if you've forgotten who I, I'm David. Why are you pursuing a dead dog, a single flea? I am nothing. The Lord, therefore, be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my case and deliver me from your hand. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me and that the Lord delivered me into your hand and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king. Wrong, Saul. Wrong tense, Saul. David is king. He is not, will be king. God has already anointed him. It was an accomplished fact. And I know that you will, that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. That's fair. But it is nonetheless an accomplished reality in the mind of God. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Oh, that's an interesting little tidbit. Saul goes home. David could have found Saul anytime he wanted to. Saul went back to familiar territory. David didn't go, whew, all right, basically a peace treaty. Now we're good to go. Let's go, guys. No, they went back to the stronghold. They went back in hiding. David knows who Saul is. And David knows who the Lord God is. Looking back over the sweep of humankind, the struggles of Noah that we're familiar with, the struggles of Joseph, the struggles of Moses and of Samuel and Saul and David, and of all the prophets and all the patriarchs, 
are, as a result, if you will, thinking about eschatologically and all that that means, are because Jesus, the Messiah, has not yet come. Their Redeemer has not yet come and made all things new, has not restored Israel as the rulers of the world as God intended as he chose them out long ago in the book of Deuteronomy. But now, since Jesus has come in our day, the one called the Prince of Peace, well, now we live with Oh, we don't live with so much peace ourselves any still more, do we? Things still haven't and aren't easy for millions of Christ followers worldwide. But wait a minute. I thought our salvation was all secured and everything's complete. Yeah, all true. But you see, David wasn't living in his last chapter And so David is yet to know of his significance in the grand scheme of biblical history and what happens when all those details are filled in by the mighty creator of the universe. And we are not living in our last chapter yet of knowing how all the unknown details of our lives will be filled in by the creator whose purposes will not be thwarted. But we know that he can be trusted. And we know the victory is completed and accomplished and secured and the enemy is vanquished. But, oh, we're still kind of living on the island of Lubang, waiting for the day when the king returns and ushers in the fullness of the experience of what is already accomplished reality. Jesus himself, again, I've mentioned this a lot of times before, who for the joy set before him, the writer of Hebrews says, endured the cross. And so we come into our world. We are here. We are living day by day. There are so many unknowns, so many anxieties and tensions and everything else that goes with that. We are living with, oh, with the, with the utter absolute assurance knowing that it's all done, it's all accomplished, and now it just has to play out. So it's not going to be any easier. What happened yesterday? I could be wrong. I firmly believe that is yet one more mercy and grace by God upon our nation, not for the sake of increasing our portfolios, not for the sake of relieving the stress and tension of living in a fallen world so that we can enjoy things more and we can have more leisure and more pleasure and get the more zip out of life and acquire more things and all of that. But the reprieves are solely so that the church gets, gets its head out of its spiritual duffel bag and gets on board with the Lord in doing what he created us to do. And that is to seek and to save those who are lost for that is what the first body of Christ did when he was here. And we are now the second body of Christ, as you know. What will we do with it? What will we do? What have we done with this reprieve? 
because it could change. It could change any moment, even in spite of what happened yesterday. You know, the enemies are already declaring when we regain, not if, when we regain control, we will start proceeding toward impeachment of this Supreme Court appointment because they do understand the monumental importance of what it means to being a lawful nation that can be blessed by God if we go back to being a nation of laws under God to his glory and praise. Anything less is going to end up with Saul in the cave. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for what you brought about yesterday. And I would to you, O Lord, that we would get yet another Supreme Court justice who is of character that is reflective of your heart and mind that who will be committed to restoring a nation of lawfulness instead of lawlessness where everyone does what is right in their own eyes and fabricating things found in our founding documents that have never been there. Oh Lord, thank you on this Sunday for your mercy and grace poured out yesterday. But may we be even much more diligent to pursue the things that are near and dear to your heart for the sake of thy kingdom come. To you be the glory and praise, now and forevermore. Amen.